1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We thank you so much for being part of the show and joining us each week. Before we pick up with this week's episode, reminder, our website is up and running, hazardground.com. Also, make sure you guys get on iTunes. Leave us a rating or review or wherever you're listening to it, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, whatever it is. Leave us a rating and a review there. Those things really help us. Not only do we enjoy the feedback and hearing from you guys what you like and don't like, but it also helps grow the show and continue to gain popularity so we can get bigger and better guests and tell you guys better stories. So we certainly appreciate uh, your involvement. It doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out review, just something quick and short that lets us know that you guys are listening and that you're enjoying what we're doing. Okay, this week's episode is a continuation of last week from Ryan Pitt's Medal of Honor recipient. When we last left off, he had just begun his battle in Afghanistan at his small combat outpost, and we complete Ryan Pitt's story this week on the Hazard Ground podcast. Okay, so you got a tourniquet on your leg. It's you, Bogar, and who else is left at OP Topside at this point who's still
0: alive? So uh, there were nine of us originally at this point. There's Bogar, Gobble's wounded but still alive. Uh, Tyler Stafford's wounded but still alive. Fruit Rainey, Jonathan Ayers, uh, Chris McKeg, and uh, Matt Phillips is still alive at that point. Okay, Uh, At this point, only uh, Gunner's willing have been killed.
1: Okay, um, and so uh, what are you trying to accomplish right now with what's around you? What What's kind of the, the, the immediate objective for you outside of, you know, laying fire back with the enemy, but what else are you trying to accomplish? you talking about me personally? No, I, just, well, I mean, as a, as a collective group at the OP, like, I mean, but, but both you personally and everybody involved.
0: I think everybody involved was doing the best they could to repel the assault. I mean, we they had come in close. They... They had both set up, you know, at a distance and elevation, but they had also moved into the village.
1: But, like, you could see the enemy fighters with your own eyes?
0: I couldn't see them from okay. where I was at, but the guys like Ayers and Pruitt and them, they could see them, you know, 75, 100 meters away. Uh, McKegg talked about one guy running up on the wire uh, and trying to breach the wire. The guys down in the village could see him. Um, you know, one of our guys, Hector Chavez they had tried to neutralize our mortar pit and did, but they were climbing trees to try and shoot down over the walls or right around our perimeter. They were inside buildings, you know, right inside the village, um, up at the OP, you know, we knew when we took hand grenades that they had moved into this, there was this dead space just to the North, uh, that they had moved into this little stream bed. Um, so they were probably within 15, 20 meters of us.
1: (sighs) I'm I'm visualizing this, and uh, I I need a change of underwear. Um, How are you guys right now not fearing being overrun, or are you?
0: No, I think everybody was well aware that that's what they wanted to do, or at least that was our understanding. Um, I, I don't know if there was time to be afraid. I think it was just everybody was well aware of that reality, and it was fighting back with, I mean, everything um, everything these guys had.
1: So what happens next?
0: Uh, I, 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 you know, after Bogart put the tourniquet on, I, I never been in a fight where anybody that was wounded uh, had to fight back, you know, where there wasn't enough guys or we felt like we had enough of the upper hand to to hold on. And, and I kind of sat there for a minute thinking like, okay, you know, I guess I'm I'm out of this thing. Like, I can't stand up. You know, what am I going to be able to do? And um, Tyler Stafford called in at that point. Uh, he had been wounded. He had taken shrapnel to his stomach and, and elsewhere. Um, and he, uh, he had told me that, you know, as, as Matthew Phillips was fighting back on the Northern side, kind of by himself, he had prepared to throw a hand grenade back at the enemy and he he had been killed by an incoming RPG. Um, and then Stafford had told me that the enemy was throwing hand grenades. Um, and, you know, just hearing that Phillips had just been killed and that, you know, the enemy was in the hand grenade rage. I mean, at that point, I just got so I got pissed off, um, you know. In one sense, you know, Phillips had just been killed, but that they felt that they could come in that close, I guess, and get away with it. And I remember thinking, well, if they're within hand grenade, if we're within hand grenade range for them, they're within hand grenade range for us. And so I I crawled out of the position, uh, back to the northern position, and uh, we had a bunch of hand grenades in there, and I started cooking off hand grenades and throwing them into the dead space. Uh, to try and try and push the enemy out of there.
1: Let me ask you: um, when, you when you crawled back, real quick, was it painful? We, we, you weren't feeling anything at this point.
0: No, nah, I, I couldn't feel anything.
1: Okay, I just nah, didn't know was, how much of a struggle that was for you to get across to the other side of the of, of the outpost.
0: I mean, just hard because it was like high crawling without using your legs. I could only use my own my upper body. Right. Okay. Um, but at that point, you know, my legs just felt like they were asleep.
1: Um, and so you're cooking these grenades off, and for the civilians listening, basically. You, you you pulled the pin, let the key come off, and you're holding a live grenade in your hand for a couple of seconds before you actually throw it. So just for the civilians who don't understand what that means, it's uh it's shortening the time to detonation, which is a scary proposition.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, people have said that, but at the time, <laughs> I mean, it, for, for anybody that's been in combat, it, the crazy thing would not to be to do the things that people think are crazy. Sure. It, it was what just um, needed to be done. It was what we had been trained to do. Um, you know, granted, it was it was interesting. I had never, I had not thrown a hand grenade since like basic training, like five years earlier. And uh, well, at that point, of, yeah, five years earlier. And um, you know, I, I had remembered. You know, part of the grenade qualification was clearing a bunker, and you know, pull the pin, let the spoon come off, cook it off, and then throw it. And it was. You know, I think for all of us in those moments, it was in all this chaos of just that was the quality of our training was just falling back. And it just became instinctual of thinking, okay, these are the resources that I have. These are the weapons and tools at my disposal. Okay, how do I how do I use them? Maybe not in the way that we would normally use them.
1: And for those wondering as well, who are civilians listening, you know, the, the other premise in cooking off the grenade is it doesn't give them time to throw it back. Um, you know, if you're that close, it it, it takes a grenade. What about, what's the, what's the lag time? Six, seven seconds. Um, I think it's five seconds. Is it five? Okay. Yeah. I mean, believe me, that's, that's a long time for you to throw a grenade, 10, 10 yards, someone pick it up and at least throw it back up in the air so it doesn't explode in their face. Um, so that's the other premise behind doing that. How effective was it?
0: Uh, yeah, I, you know, I can't say with any level of honesty, I mean, we didn't take any more hand grenades out of that stream bed. Um, (laughs) So I mean that was that was my intent, right? Is I wanted to throw them so that they couldn't throw them back, um, and you know I, I had thrown the hand grenades that I could, and you know didn't want to exhaust them all, and so it just it, just like everybody else, it became okay. What's the next thing I can do uh, to contribute? And we had a two forty in that position. Now, I'm not a two forty gunner. I'm, I'm a thirteen fox, but we'd all been cross trained, uh, and so I put the two forty into action, and you know for me. The enemy was so close and their fire was so accurate that what I first did was I started blind firing over the top of the sandbags. I was gonna say, how could you stand them. up? Well, I, I couldn't. I pulled my right leg up into like a like I was kneeling on my left. Uh-huh. I kept my left knee down. I pulled my right leg up with my my hands and then pulled myself up on the sandbags. I'd start blind firing over the top and then I I can't I'd pop up and start trying to engage. Uh, but I kept running in the issue that it was you know, all the rounds were in an ammo bag it's a crew serve weapon it was just me and it kept malfunctioning because the, the rounds would get taught wouldn't feed anymore so I have to pull it back down correct the malfunction and then you know re- repeat the process back over again and, do,
1: you, do you have any idea at this point what's going on at the main base like how much trouble they're in or you were too engaged in what you were doing to to even be aware
0: um I mean, you could tell just by the volume of fire coming in. Sure. That, you know, everybody was in the same situation we were.
1: But at, you, at, but at, you have no idea to what extent, I mean, I guess.
0: No, no. I had gotten on the radio when I was initially wounded to call down the situation uh, in inform, form. You know, our commander on the ground, we had our company commander there, Matt Meyer, and let him know the situation that we had taken casualties at the observation posts. You know, we're turning fire and, um, you know, we have a heavy amount of fire coming back in. Uh, but you know there wasn't a whole lot of details going back and forth about what the situation was at every position.
1: Okay, uh, and just okay. So bring me back to where you are at OP topside now.
0: Yeah, so I'm in the the northern fighting position. I'm trying uh, using the 240, and uh, you know I was doing this for a little while, and you know Pruitt's managing, you know, running around behind me, and uh, at one point, I, I just remember Lieutenant Brostrom just popped up next to me, popped his head up over the sandbags next to me and scared the hell out of me. Uh, Had this big grin on his face and was asking me where the enemy was. And I was, you know, right down there, you know, all along the eastern flank. And uh, he he just jumped in the fight. I remember just feeling this huge sense of relief that, you know, we have this other able-bodied, healthy senior leader to help take control of the observation post because I I wasn't really in any condition um, to be running it. And you know, it wasn't until later that I learned that he had made this mad dash from the vehicle patrol base to the observation post, And uh, he had run over to our, I believe it was second squad, you know, second squad. And, you know, I asked for volunteers and this kid, Jason Hovater, you know, raised his hand and said, yep, but you know, I'll, I'll go with you. And, and the two of them just ran, I mean, through the center of the village, I'm sure they ran. I, the vision I have in my head is when, uh can't remember what the lieutenant's name was, but in, in Bastogne, when, the Lieutenant runs right through the middle of the village during mm-hmm. the assault to link up with the guys on the other side. And, you know, the Germans are just totally caught off guard. Can't believe they don't even shoot him. Cause I can't believe this guy's doing it. But that's the vision I have with the enemy, you know, of just Hovater and, and Brostrom just running over open ground, completely exposed, just sprinting the whole way to try and come and reinforce the observation post.
1: I mean, it must've been just a huge emotional lift when they actually got there though.
0: <laughs> I, it was, I think it was, um, for everybody you know he immediately started moving you know stuff around um you know I, I continued to do what i could on the 240 as he assessed the situation he had he'd linked up with pruitt um I, I, at one time uh you know i turned around and pruitt had come to me and needed uh and said you know lieutenant brosher needs the 240 and you know just yep gave it right to him we switched out weapons he gave me an m4 with a 203 um you know and, it was a huge emotional lift, you know, but at the same time, you know, saying it was, it was amazing. The trust that we all had in each other that, you know, there was never any concern for any of us that the guys in the other fighting positions weren't given everything they had. And, you know, when Pruitt asked for the two forty, and I'm not even, you know, I wasn't even asking where Lieutenant Brochton wanted it, you know, just he wants to take it fine and he's got something to do with it and then just give it up. You know, and everybody's just chipping in, chucking ammo wherever they need it to.
1: All right. So, how many people are now at OP topside who are in the fight um, and alive? Uh,
0: in the fight and alive, there's Bogar, Ayers, McKeg, Pruitt, Hovater, Brostrom, and myself. All right. So, that's, and, uh,
1: you, you've increased your position at this point.
0: Yeah. And Stafford and Gobble are, are still wounded. Um, and, and, Brostrom's, you know, he's taken that, and I've just got the M4 with the 203. So at this point, I switched over to the radio, uh, you know, as a Ford observer. You know, at some point in the beginning, I had talked to Matt Meyer about targets, and we had pre-planned targets out there and trying to use the the 155s. Uh, at this point, they had targeted our – we had brought a 120 and a 60 with us, 60-millimeter mortar. And at this point, you know, they had actually pushed our mortar uh, team out of the mortar pit Cause they had gotten an RPG in there into the 120 rounds um, and they had to vacate that position you know for fear that they were going to start cooking off wow and they couldn't they couldn't hold that position anymore so I got back on the radio and Matt Meyer started trying to work on on targets uh, work on trying to get the 60 into action because you know just for the listeners or those that you know are familiar with it you know danger close for 155 600 meters uh, it was 200 meters for a 60. And, you know, knowing our mortar team and we had spent, you know, the entire deployment together and I'd shot dozens of missions with these guys and other mortar teams, but they were all so incredibly competent that I would have walked that, that round right into, you know, within the casualty radius of it.
1: Well, but let me ask you, because you guys were so close to where the enemy was, weren't you also putting yourselves at risk by calling in the artillery?
0: Yeah, we had used it. It, it was further out. We were trying to hit their positions that were higher and further, okay. you know, support by fire positions.
1: So you, you are around starting to come in from artillery now at this point or no, you, you guys just Oh, they
0: were, they were right off the bat firing on our pre-planned targets. And, and then we were starting to try and move them around.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Um, and, and for those against civilians, not listening, um, you know, with artillery, you can kind of walk guys in if they're too far, you know, if they're 50 meters too far to the North, you can kind of walk them in and let them know, Hey, you need to come back South or, and, and so you basically get close enough to your target to hit them. Um, you know the old uh, hand grenades and horseshoes kind of is is uh, for civilians listening good enough in the artillery world. Sometimes doesn't have to be a direct hit for it to be effective. Okay, so uh, I'm just getting kind of mentally caught up here. Uh, you have the two or three grenade launcher. You're, you're calling in uh, for fire support. What else is happening?
0: It's still just everybody's fighting around. It. And for a while, it, it was it seemed the same. Um, you know, the whole ops just returning fire out. You know everything's unbelievably chaotic, uh, but then after a while, it just it felt quiet.
1: How long uh, are you in the fight now at this point? I could you estimate
0: thirty, forty five minutes, maybe.
1: That seems like a freaking eternity, bro. <laughs> right.
0: it, it, it went by in like a blink of an eye. Right. <laughs> I, it's it's, it, it's I I base everything off like I know when it started, I know when I was evacuated, and it's somewhere in between there.
1: Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, just, you know, 30 minutes of firefight is a, is, is a long time to keep yourself alive. Um, sometimes it doesn't last that long and, and bad things happen. All right. So you're at it and it finally gets quiet for a moment. Do you know why it gets quiet or?
0: Yeah, we, everybody had had been killed or, or forced to fall back.
1: For the Um, enemy or for you guys?
0: For us. Okay. For our guys. Uh, it was at that point, I, I, you know, I didn't want to yell out and, you know, asking if anybody's around and give the enemy the opportunity to figure out that, you know, if I am the only one left there, they'll know it too. Um, and so I crawled around. I looked down onto the lower terrace where Lieutenant Brosham had set up and I could, I could see our guys down there, not moving. And I crawl by and I look at the, the crow's nest to the east. and I look up in there and nobody's moving up there and I get the Southern position and, and there's no one there. Um, at this point, I crawled back to the north and sat myself up against the back wall and I mean, freaking out in my head, realizing that like, I'm the only person left here. I'm, I'm wounded. I can't go anywhere. And you know, I, I get on the radio and I call down to, to Matt Meyer and let him know that everybody's either you know dead or had to fall back uh, and that they need to send somebody or the position is going to fall. And, you know, at this point, the enemy was so close that the guys, everybody listened on the radio down at the vehicle patrol base could hear the enemy talking over my radio. And uh, Matt Meyer came back and told me, hey, there's, there's no one, there's no one we can send. Like, we we don't have anybody to send down here right now. And, uh, okay, Roger. And uh, at that point, you know, in my mind, I'm sitting there thinking of, you know, how is this going to play out? It's, it felt like an hour, but it was probably just a second or two. And I would seen those horrible videos, uh, heard about them, about people, you know, getting captured and decapitated. And all I could think about is I don't want my family to see, you know, me get decapitated on YouTube. And, you know, and then I, right then I just kind of decided that, you know, I I wasn't going to let them, they were going to have to kill me. Uh, And so I just started thinking of, okay, what's, what's the next thing I can do? You know, what tools do I have right here? I had that two Oh three. And earlier in the deployment, I had seen our second our third squad leader, Sergeant Sean Samaru, train his guys, how to use the two Oh three to kind of lob it in directly and put it into dead space. And I thought, okay, I can do the same thing. I I think, I know they're all kind of, I'm worried about them coming in this riverbed. So I did the same thing. I, I, put the 203 vertically I put the rifle vertically racked around and then just leaned it a little bit in that direction and, and fired it off and that first round it, it that was like the longest however long it took for it to come down of my life because um, you know, I, I let it go and I, I remember thinking like uh, I didn't even I didn't even think about the wind because I didn't lay it over much and so this thing's basically going straight up and uh, but it I don't know where it landed. I mean, I hope that it landed in the in the riverbed, but I can't say. I couldn't stand up, so I didn't see it. I wasn't looking for it.
1: Um, and uh, let me ask you real quick: in that time where you're crawling back and forth, and you're seeing everybody either wounded or dead around you, it, are, are you still being fired upon, or is there a moment of of quiet? Is this in the moment of quiet?
0: Um, moment in quiet from RPGs, but they were still, still shooting
1: small, small arms. arms. Okay,
0: yeah. I mean, there's the whole the whole everybody was shooting at us. It was still going on. They they had tapered off on the RPGs uh, in the beginning,
1: and and you mentioned that you had a moment of uh, you, you didn't say fear, but you you uh, you realize kind of that this is a a a bad position that you're in. Um, is it fair to characterize that you were afraid at any point? And I'm not trying to lead you down that road per se, but you seem to have such resolve and, and trust in the training and everything else. I, I understand that, but at some point you're still a human. So I guess I'm just wondering what your mental state was.
0: Yeah. I mean, in that first moment, when I got back and sat down here, I was afraid. I mean, I thought about it. I was just, just because it was just me. I I couldn't, I couldn't stand. I wasn't going to be much of a, any sort of physical resistance, at least, you know, as much as I would have liked to have been. And, you know, all I could think is if they come in here, I'm going to get captured. And I did not want that. Um, like once I, you know, kind of resolved myself that, you know, nope, I'm not going to give them the opportunity. They're going to have to, they're going to have to kill me. I'm not going to let them. Okay. And that, after that, it was, it was like a moment of clarity of just, all right, this is what I'm doing.
1: You begin to start lobbing, I guess, grenades straight overhead, <laughs> afraid that they're not going to fall back in your lap. But, um, how, you know, that first one hit and then you just continue that for how long?
0: Couldn't tell you probably for all the two or three rounds I had. I don't remember how many I had. I just kept doing it. Uh, and, and till I thought I had done a good job, I guess. And then I just started thinking, okay, what's the, what's the next thing I can do. I got on the radio and tried again to, to walk the sixties in. Cause I was going to walk the sixties into that riverbed. Um, but the, the mortar team, they couldn't get to the mortar. They just, every time they, they try to make a run for it, you know, they'd be, they'd be lit up. Um, you know, and I know that they made every effort they could, and if they could have gotten there, they would have. Uh, and then, you know, it okay, fine. You know, who I got, on, I got on the radio next and thought, okay, maybe our our first squad at the traffic control point could see the OP, and you know, maybe they can lay down a barrage of fire. And so I got on the radio and asked, you know, anybody at OP uh, at the traffic control point, you know, this is nine two, and uh, my buddy Brian Hisong, who's the team leader over there. Got on the radio and I said, Hey, if you can see my position, I need you to start firing right over the tops of the sandbags. And, you know, Roger and those guys immediately did. They started laying down this this blanket of fire right over the top of the sandbags. Um, And and I just kind of sat there waiting with my gun in my lap, uh, waiting to, you know, for an enemy to come in
1: did uh could you see the the, the rounds going over your, i mean you know these 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 hesco bastions are what four feet high at this time I and mean, these, these rounds are pretty close to you flying over your head
0: no these this, we didn't have any hescos up there this was just like oh, okay you know, sandbags and they were probably a little bit taller than i was sitting down um and I, you know, I couldn't see the rounds but it wasn't that far but i mean i i trusted those guys i was in a covered position i mean it, the alternative was much worse
1: So the rounds start to go over and and help kind of lay some suppressive fire down. Um, Where, where, I mean, what's going on elsewhere that's going to come and help you out here? Because you you don't end up there alone the whole time, do you?
0: No. So when I had called down to Matt Meyer and everybody had heard the the enemy over my radio and, you know, heard, you know, nobody was coming for me or could come for me. uh, At our third squad gun truck, there was this specialist, Jacob Sones, Heard that in the media it was like, we're going. I gotta go get them Like I'm going, and uh, Israel Garcia, his his team leader, went with them and they ran to the traffic control point. You no, know, again, this is this mad dash across open ground. They might have been able to stop at one fighting position in between, but they're basically covering open ground in the the center of you want to call our entire unit. You know, this target. They're in the bullseye, and they they make it to the traffic control point and say that they're going up to the the op. To to reinforce and save me. And at that point, Sergeant Samaru uh, says, Okay, you're not going alone. And him and Mike Denton, this uh saw gutter, they all team up and they make their way using the terraces to the best of their ability. And as they come up on the the OP, Samaru can see a guy standing on a rock to the, the north there, shooting down to the OP, and he shoots him and uh they move in. At this point, I had no idea they were coming. Um because I'd put the radio down after they said nobody was coming. I was there's no reason to listen to the radio. I'm just going to sit here and, you know, put all my attention to fighting the enemy. And uh, I could hear yelling, uh, but it was in English. And I just remember just the greatest sense of relief I've ever felt in my life, knowing that, you know, reinforcements had, had come up there. And they come in and Stones comes to that Northern fighting position and, and can see me. And I could tell he's taken a little back, at first (laughs) seeing how the, the nature of my wounds, uh, and
1: well, I wanted to ask you real quick about that. Like, I mean, you've been losing blood for a while now. I I mean, are you starting to fade in consciousness or what?
0: I was starting to get pretty uncomfortable, um, with the tourniquet on my leg with the, just, I don't know, whether it was the blood not able to go down. I had taken shrapnel in my backside, so I don't know if it was, you know, sitting on that, um, but the pain had started to kind of set in and I was feeling, tired I wasn't sleepy yet um, but I was feeling pretty pretty drained and it was they were a, a sight for sore eyes to say the least
1: so son sees you and he's kind of taken back go ahead continue
0: and uh he, he starts to to treat me and you know at this time Denton and Samru you know we've been in the fight for a while now I think around now we've been in over an hour and you know everybody's running low on ammo and so they, they started searching our casualties for ammo and, uh, you know, they're checking our, our guys. And one story that's always stuck out to me is, is Hovater was Denton's best friend and Denton had to search him for ammo. And, uh, you know, he, he searched his dead body. He looked at him and he told him he loved him. And then he went on and, you know, collected more ammo and, you know, just prepared to continue to fight. And
1: you saw that whole thing happen.
0: I didn't see it. I learned about it afterwards. Okay. All right. Denton told me about it afterwards. And, um, you know, him and Samer were doing that. And Garcia's pulling security, and Sones is trying to treat me. And uh, at some point in there, uh, not long after they had gotten there, there was another volley of rocket-propelled grenades came in and hit everybody. Um, Sones is wounded. Samer was hit pretty good. Denton was hit. Garcia was was mortally wounded in that volley and he, he went down in the middle of the, the observation posts. Um, you know, so crawled to the Southern position where Denton and, and, Samuel were to try and get treatment. And I was following him and came across Garcia and tried to hold his hand and talk to him. And I could tell from his wounds that I wasn't going to be able to do anything But I, you know, I couldn't save him. Um, and so I just, I guess, tried to comfort him. And there's not much you can do, I guess, there. He, um, you know, I tried to make him comfortable as best I could. And you know, he asked me to tell his wife and his family that he loved him. And I told him that I would. And you know, I, I crawled back to the Southern position with uh, Denton and Sam Ruin-Sounds. And Sam Ruin asked where Garcia was, and I told him. And they, they brought him in there. And, um, you know, we are all... Pretty seriously when we did it, Denton's the only one still able to pull security. And I mean, there's just all these incredible moments that just stick out in my mind of the things that the guys did that day. And uh, Denton's standing up and he had taken, he's right-hand dominant. He's a saw gunner. But he had taken shrapnel and he up and down his backside, his back, lower back, legs. He had taken a piece through the middle of his right hand, bones sticking out of his hand. And this kid's standing up with his saw, you know, propped on his forearm, pulling security you know, ready to fight while the rest of us can't. And um yeah, you know, Samaru's embitter went down, so I got that working. Denton checked Samaru to make sure he wasn't, you know, mortally wounded and try to treat him. And uh, you know, at that point we're like, all right, we we can't we can't stay here. Like just everybody's too banged up. We gotta try and, and get out of here. And so they pushed down the, the sandbag wall there to the south. And we started to crawl out, and I, I I was sitting there leaning up against the sandbags, and uh, I I just watch as, you know, our our, I guess I should back up a little bit. While they were there, the Apache gunships came in, and I mean that was a big sense of relief because just any time Apache gunships show up, you know it's it's a it's a game changer. Uh, and those guys came in hot and immediately. You know you, you kind of feel the the mood of the fight change a little bit. Sure. And, I mean, they came in and they were doing gun runs within, uh, I, fifteen, twenty meters of the OP, I think, um, trying to lay it down as close as they could into that riverbed. And so they they were helping there. And about this time, our first platoon at QRF from Fall Blessing and made the run up to, to knot. And I mean, those guys were they, they didn't stop for nothing. They didn't clear anything. They would just fly around, you know, shoot into dead space where they could, and just they just drove like Mad Max up to us and about this time, you know, I can see the gun truck start rolling in and all of a sudden just, just guys start pouring up to the OP, making their way, way up the terraces uh, to to come and get us. And they had called out uh, that medevacs were coming in and, you know, I could see one had landed down at the vehicle patrol base and was starting to evac casualties because we had taken a number of casualties down there. And, they asked us to to pop smoke and I'm thinking, okay, we're just popping smoke so the Apaches know where we are and so the you know the Medevac crews will know where I never thinking, you know, thinking the whole time we're gonna have to make our way down the vehicle patrol base. And you know, all of a sudden this helicopter, this Medevac comes in, flares and lands right on one of the terraces between us and the enemy. Wow. And the guys, the crew chief and the other medic, they get off and they start coming down the terraces to get us. Uh, and they load up Samaru, Denton, Soames, and me. And that was the, uh, that was the end of the fight for me, for us.
1: Well, let me go back for a second, um, to that moment with, uh, with Sergeant Garcia. Um, you know, uh, obviously that's something that stays with you forever. Do you feel like when you look back on it, that you said the right thing or you acted the right way? Do, do you ever replay that moment in your head?
0: I've thought about it a lot. Uh, I don't think I don't I guess I don't think about, you know, if there's anything else that I could do, you know, if anything, I guess like all of us would think like, all right, was making the call down there the right thing? You know, was it fair that basically he traded his life for mine? You know, or, you know, could I have, you know, maybe the position wouldn't have been overrun and I could have just held on, you know, with the support and the, the trucks were coming and the Apaches had showed up that you know was did that even have to happen um, I guess that's where that's where my mind's gone on that
1: no that's fair um and you know Ryan if it's if it's worth anything you know we've had plenty of people on the podcast who have weighed similar decisions like that and have had to live with the same sort of uh, situation um, but you know the one solace I think everybody talks about. And, you know, if the shoe was on the other foot, it would have played out the exact same way if the roles were reversed. Um, And I don't think anybody has any, any hesitation about saying that. And sure it's not any consolation, but um, I, I, from an objective outsider from that standpoint, if I can relate any empathy it's in the other stories I've heard that um, that's how people understand it. And, and uh, uh, you know, I can't imagine what that moment was like, and the fact that you relate it, you know, so eloquently is, is beautiful for our listeners, but, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't know how to, uh, adequately describe it, I guess, but I just, you know, I, I appreciate you sharing that with
0: us. I think all those guys were being exactly who they were. Um, you know, one of the guys that was killed, Jonathan Ayers, he was in that machine gun nest that, uh, we called it the crow's nest there. He was in the machine gun. He had taken a round of the helmet. and knocked him down, you know, earlier on in the fight. And, he got right back up on that gun and he knew that, you know, if they'd hit him in the helmet once, you know, they could do it again. And, you know, the next one, you know, it it killed him. They got him. And um, I think about that. I think about Garcia, I think about those guys. And it, it wasn't anyone else's decision to make for them. And, you know, I know I wrestled with it a long time afterwards because after the fight we lost, we lost nine guys that day. Sergio Abad, Jonathan Ayers, Jason Bogar, Jonathan Brostrom, Israel Garcia, Jason Hovater, Matthew Phillips, Pruitt, Rainey, and Gunners mm-hmm. Willing. Um, just that those guys made a sacrifice and that, you know, I, if the shoe was on the other foot, I wouldn't want them to blame themselves or suffer anything for it that if anything, I, you know, we all owe it to them to live lives worthy of their sacrifice and make the, make the most of it, not punish ourselves.
1: That's fair. I, 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 again, it's the same thing that a lot of other people have echoed. Um, you know, when you, when you go back and you replay this and you talk about it, do you ever come up with something new? Do you ever realize that maybe, things could have happened or would have happened a different way if X or Y happened? I mean, how much or how difficult is it to, to retell this story and not have that happen?
0: I did that for a while. Uh, you know, maybe the first few years, well, probably longer, but I felt like it was a useless exercise to think about what could have gone differently because I can't go back in time. I can't, I can't change anything um and that what happened happened and you know i think that those guys you know if they had to choose between sacrificing their lives or not you know or or one of our lives for theirs they choose to sacrifice their lives for us and i consider myself lucky that i actually got to know men like that because how many people are tested like that and uh i guess i just try to think like like i said before we owe it to them to make the most of the gift they gave us because i've always lo- i look at it like I'm living on borrowed time. I didn't have a wife. I didn't have kids at that point in time, but I do now. And a lot of us do. And a lot of us do because of the sacrifices that those guys made. Uh, and that's a gift that they gave to us that I never want to forget where it came from. And I, I, you know, I I want my kids to grow up and they'll never be able to fully appreciate unless they experience the military on their own and hope to God they never experienced something like that. But I think it's the only way you can um, where I want them to understand that everything they have is because of guys made a sack guys. They never knew made a sacrifice greater than they could possibly ever understand.
1: One more question as it pertains to the battle. Um, Sergeant Garcia asked you to re- relay a message to his wife and his family. Um, when did that meeting happen? And and how was that? How difficult was that for you?
0: Yeah, we uh, so uh, we went back to the unit, got back to Italy shortly after uh, that battle. I went to Walter Reed. Denton was at Walter Reed with me. We were there for a while. And, um, so this was July 13th. We made it back to the unit had like a homecoming in, I think September. And I was able to go back for that and, uh, got to, m- to see Garcia's wife and meet his mom and Denton and I went over and, uh, and spoke to them. I, it, it was hard, but it, it had nothing to do with whether it was hard for me and, and Denton. it was about, you know, honoring what Garcia had asked us to do. And, uh, i I'm, I'm glad that we did that, that we could let them know that, you know, in his final moments, his thoughts were of them.
1: I, I couldn't imagine that conversation. Like, you see it on TV, in the movies, and uh, no matter how they try to portray it, uh, I, I it, it doesn't do it justice for how emotional that moment is. Am I right?
0: Yeah, I, it was. But I think Dent and I both went into it, like I said, just trying to think about, like, this is a, this is our duty. We owe it. You know, we're here because of Garcia. We owe it to him to do this. You know, our our discomfort is irrelevant. This is about, you know, Leslie and his mom, Mari Cruz.
1: What is the status of your injuries um, as far as your leg and everything else?
0: I still got it. I'm I'm not too much worse for the wear.
1: Really? Um,
0: Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, you know, and I think about all the injuries that that people have and guys I serve with that have. You know, lost limbs or a permanent damage. Um, I, I feel pretty lucky that I'm, you know, been able to to bounce back um, the way I have, and it's it's a credit to you know the treatment I got that day. Bogar helped save my leg, uh, save my life. The Medevac crews coming when they did, because when they got there, I was starting to feel real real sleepy, um, and you know they took a incredible care of us, and uh, Bagram, Bagram Airfield you know, in the, in the field hospital there, you know, doing the surgeries they need to do to stabilize us there. I got incredible medical treatment
1: from there all the way
0: to Walter Reed. And they did an incredible job putting me back together so I could be where I am now.
1: All right. So let's fast forward to, um, I guess the, the administration paperwork and I don't want to call it a formality, but you know, the, the process of you finding out that you're going to be awarded for, your efforts on july 13
0: 2008 yeah um so i following the battle i learned that i was going to be nominated for the distinguished service cross and i i ended up med boarding out of the army and i just moved on with my life uh went to school and everything and i had heard along the way i'd stayed in touch a battalion commander kept me posted company commander kept me posted and had heard somewhere along the way, but it always felt like rumors like, Hey, it's going to be upgraded. Kyle White was in a uh, first platoon. He was the one I had mentioned earlier from uh, the November 9th ambush, who was also nominated for the Medal of honor. Um, and uh, he had told me when he had gotten his call and uh, that he, that he was actually going to receive it. And they were, you know, he was going through the process of you know, all the preparations that go into that. And uh, he was actually at the Pentagon doing his, his visits and he texted me and said, "Hey, they need your number because they're going to be calling you soon." Wow! And that was that was kind of how I found. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to find out formally, but that that was that was how I found out, you know, initially. Um,
1: who gave you the actual call?
0: The oh the the president. Well, so I mean, they, they prepped you ahead of time and let you know, but the, you know, the official announcement comes from comes from the president. No, but and, I mean, who uh,
1: made that first call to tell you? Hey, the president is going to call you to tell you.
0: It was a, uh, it was a Colonel.
1: Okay. Just some at the staff Colonel that, at the helps, pen- okay. that,
0: that coordinates those things. And, you know, I'd let me know that, Hey, this is going to happen. You know, at some point you're going to get a call from a senior, senior, the senior, a senior military or leader. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> I, I think I can put together who that is. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. And, uh, you know, they coordinate, they tell you, Hey, okay. Is this date good this time? Yep. Okay. You know, and, and I wasn't nervous until the call actually came.
1: What number pops up? Right.
0: I don't even remember. Oh, okay. <laughs> I should have saved it, but it, I don't even remember. And I think it was, it was probably blocked. And uh, I was sitting in my living room, and uh, I had never dropped a call in the house before on my cell phone, but I res- realized I was on my cell phone. And the whole time, you know, I talked to the, the lady at the White House that called to, you know, just say, hey, you still available? And, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm good. Okay. You ready for a call? For the, the president will be on in a minute. Oh, okay. And um, I'm sitting there in the silence thinking, oh, my God, I hope my phone doesn't drop this call. Like, did it just drop it? And it, it, mine might have been on hold for 30 seconds. It, it could have been an hour. I don't know. It felt the same to me. And uh, then the president came on. And, hey, how are you doing? And I felt, like I said, calm up to that point. And then it just kind of sunk in. And I I was like an idiot. How are you doing? I'm good, sir. How are you? You know, And it was, you know, brief. I, I can't even remember what was said for most of it.
1: That's uh, it's got to be you know, elating, I guess. I, I don't even know what I would compare it to, so I won't try. But when you hang up the phone, do you remember what you felt after it was all done?
0: It's just surreal, it just didn't feel real. You know, I, I think a lot of what I was feeling then and a lot of what I was feeling before, like even when I heard about the distinguished service cross, and I never felt that I deserved that, um, was it didn't feel it didn't feel fair. Like I didn't feel like I did not do anything different than anybody else that was there that day. You know, I was just trying to keep up with everybody around me. You know, everything I did was, was just what everybody else around me was doing. And it didn't feel right that, you know, I was being recognized for something that we all did together equally. Uh, and that you know, there were nine guys that didn't come home that made the ultimate sacrifice, but over time, you know, I realized that it's, it's not about me and other recipients have all echoed the, these same sentiments. I can't say anything that's new. Um, but just that, you know, in my mind, it's a, it's an individual award for collective effort. I just get to be the caretaker of it and, um, you know, hopefully do right by all the guys, but it's, it's ours, not mine. And it really belongs to those nine guys.
1: Ryan, what's the responsibility of being a Medal of Honor winner? I mean, to that end, as you just spoke about, you know, you're kind of, you know, the, the beholder of this medal and the beholder of, I guess, this honor, if you will. But recognizing that it belongs to more than just you, is that a big responsibility?
0: I think it's an awesome responsibility. Um, you know, that it's, it's, it's not about you. And you have an opportunity to go out there and do good and you have a responsibility to do that. You, you know, it's, um, you know, if I can be an advocate for, for veterans and veteran issues and help show my appreciation for the service of, of everybody else, because it's made me realize that, you know, no one's service is any has any more value than anyone else's. I don't care whether you served in a time of peace or a time of war, you know, you answered the call for your country and we all go where we're told. And we tackle what's thrown at us. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, all jobs we don't don't do the same things, um, but they're all they all mean they're all worth the same. And so I think it's important to share that with um, with people because it's one of the, the things that I like hearing the least, right? I dislike the most, I should say, is when people say like, oh, I didn't do I thank people for their service. And they say, well, I didn't do what you did like but you did you did exactly what you were supposed to do like what i did isn't any different my service isn't any more meaningful i did you know my duty for my country and this isn't mine you know this is you know trying to explain to them what it represents and that's other people you know educating them that you know this this award represents all our service you know all the sacrifices have been made because there are tens of thousands of americans who have given their life and never been recognized for their their sacrifice. Right in that way. Right. With that sort of appreciation.
1: Just out of curiosity, where is the actual medal?
0: Uh in my closet.
1: <laughs> Don't take it out much.
0: Uh not not only for when it's needed.
1: When is it needed, I guess, is my question. When I have
0: to wear it. <laughs>
1: like do you, do you wear it to speaking engagement things of that nature?
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Well, I guess that's the nature of the event. I don't I don't keep it out on display or anything.
1: No, that's fair. I mean, I, I just, you know, your parents must be overwhelmed.
0: I think everybody kind of is. I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, is it hard? I, I guess the, the answer is no, but is it hard to remain humble? I mean, you, you obviously are very grounded about this whole thing, but, you know, saying a Medal of Honor winner carries a lot of clout.
0: I think it would, uh, it would be easy. I see how it would be easy. I, I just, I always try to keep myself in check. Uh, and my wife certainly helps with that as well. Uh, I don't get any special treatment at home.
1: But, <laughs> She's but, the medal of honor winner at home.
0: <laughs> yeah, but Just always trying to remember that, that, that this was a team effort. Like you're not special. Your service wasn't special. You know, you did your duty for your country. Um, I guess, you know, part of it too, is you don't, I guess it's a benefit of just the military experience from... You don't get to hang your hat on what you did. You know, keep driving on. You got to keep doing, you know, other good things.
1: You look back on your military career. Uh, I would guess it's not defined by the by the Medal of Honor, but what is it defined by?
0: Uh, the relationships with the guys that I served with. Um, just the things that we did together and the incredible things that I got to see them do that have just it's still like always just constant lessons thinking back on, you know, what I saw them do and just, um, it's humbling, right. To kind of see for me, what we can accomplish when we put aside our differences and focus on, you know, a common goal. And really that like, you know, yeah, it's okay that we're all different. It's good. Right. Our platoon was made up of all sorts of different people, different religions, different backgrounds, um, you know, but that didn't keep us from all loving each other and doing some amazing things by working together. Do
1: you think if you hadn't been medically discharged, you'd still be in?
0: If I, oh, if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been wounded so badly, I mean, if I could have still done what I wanted to do, yeah, I'd probably, yeah, I'd still be in. I mean, that was the plan when, uh, before I got wounded. So
1: does that actually, mean you miss it?
0: Oh, every day, every day. All the time. I uh, I loved it. It was it was a camaraderie. I mean, that's the thing I think most of us say we miss the most. It's just that sort of brotherhood and, and trust and, you know, having people that you know that have your back no matter what. You know, and they they have your back so much that they'll tell you when you're messing up. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's right. not always a, a comfortable conversation to say, but you knew exactly where you stood. But you could also be, you know, yourself, I think, back. And, you know, uh, Pruitt Rainey, I mentioned him, that like he was this big, you know, wrestler kid, but he was like a big teddy bear. He liked to listen to Britney Spears and Justin Timberlake, and it That's just awesome. seemed weird, you know, and, <laughs> and we'd all poke fun, but it was it was cool that everybody just could feel so comfortable just being exactly who they were with us, and it didn't matter. No one cared.
1: You know, what's great about the military, I've always said, it's the one business, I think, in America, the one occupation, where being part of something bigger than yourself is easiest. Like, if you think about normal business, professional athletics, um, you know, movie stars, whatever it is, the goal in all those industries is to be the biggest, right? And if you're not the biggest, you're fighting to be the biggest. But in the military, being part of something bigger than yourself is actually the biggest comfort.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I always just think about it like it's just that no one person is bigger than the team. No one person is more important than what we're all trying to do together. Um, and I just kind of love that sort of, I guess, altruism.
1: Last question. Um, is life normal again, being a medal of honor winner, or is life never normal because of what you went through?
0: Well, I still cut my own grass and take my trash to the dump. So it's, it's normal in some aspects. <laughs> uh, it is, I mean, but the, you go do those things and it's, it's another life. Um, uh, but I guess in a way it's allowed me to stay connected to the military, maybe more so than I would otherwise, because I get to go and interact with service members and veterans, um, and show my appreciation for for what they do and have done, and talk about you know what we've all kind of accomplished together.
1: Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your service. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, you do it with a great amount of grace and humility. Um, I, I don't feel like I'm talking to royalty or a Medal of Honor winner. You're just, you just you you come across as very down to earth, and I think that's refreshing. Um, not that any Medal of Honor winner has this this boastfulness about him per se, but you know, to people who aren't bestowed that honor, it's, it's, you know, it's a little bit uh, from our end. It's just, you know, you're, you're in the presence of something that is very rare. So from that standpoint um, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and I, I appreciate your honesty and, and your candor and, and just your willingness to share it with us.
0: Mark, it's been a pleasure being on. I really appreciate you having me. And uh, let me share the story of, of our guys and what we did together. Cause it's, um it's really the story of the team.
1: Ryan Pitts. Thanks for being part of the hazard Ground.
0: Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us
1: an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.
0: We'll see you next time.